You can rent a car, a house, even that little black party dress. So why not rent the stuff you need for your home too? The place to do it is Aaron's. Choose from thousands of new products from the brands you love, online or in store. Pick a payment plan that fits your budget and pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But if life changes, you can return it anytime or even upgrade it with something new. Rent what you need. It's better at Aaron's. Approval not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. See store for details. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Now, the good thing is if the trauma was what happened to me, then I'll never be the person that wasn't, quote, abandoned by my mother all those years ago. But if the trauma is the wound that I sustained, which is that I'm not lovable, that I can overcome at any moment. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome Dr. Gabor Mate to the show. Dr. Mate is a physician, renowned speaker, and best-selling author who is highly sought after for his expertise on addiction, stress, and childhood development. For his groundbreaking medical work and writing, he has been awarded the Order of Canada, his country's highest civilian distinction. He's also a co-developer of Compassionate Inquiry, a therapeutic approach for deep healing and transformation. His new book is called The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Mate about the myth of normal. Healthcare in Western societies tend to focus on physical health without accounting for an individual's lived experience. The tension between authenticity and attachment and the pressures of a capitalist culture puts undue stress on our minds and bodies. Dr. Mate invites us to rethink trauma and disease by emphasizing holistic well-being and the role of agency. We also touch on the topics of early childhood, epigenetics, and self-improvement. This was a really meaningful chat for me with someone who I admire greatly. I really like the way he thinks about trauma and the way he humanizes trauma. It's very much in line with my own humanistic perspective on healing and the importance of becoming whole. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Gabor Mate. Dr. Gabor Mate, wow, so great to have you on the Psychology Podcast. Nice to be with you. I wanted to talk to you for quite some time. really loved your latest book and... I was so excited to see a lot of areas of common interest, including our admiration for Eric Fromm. There's a name you don't hear that much these days. No, and I have to say that this book of mine, The Myth of Normal, is almost like a tribute to Fromm. I know. His book that was published, I think, in the 1940s, maybe early 50s, The Sane Society. It was seminal in, in my own thinking. And I, you know, 
he's a psychologist and I'm a medical doctor, so we cover some of different areas, but his understanding of the unity of the individual psychology and social circumstance and social structure is very much fundamental to my own understanding. Absolutely, and fundamental to mine as well. I love this quote that you open up with, and I want to read it. Uh, it says, the, f the fact that millions of people share the same vices does not make these vices virtues. The fact that they share so many errors does not make the errors to be truths. And the fact that millions of people share the same forms of mental pathology does not make these people sane. And that's yeah. from his book, The Sane Society. The general encapsulation um, of that book is that to be sane in an insane society is one of the highest forms of insanity. And it's just such a great book. And your book is, is really great, too. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on our society today. Do you think that American society, or we can include the Canadians in there, are insane? How would you describe the society today? You, you do use the word toxic, right, to describe it? The full title of the book is The Metanormal, a Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. But the original subtitle said Trauma and Healing in an Insane Society. And we thought in the end that toxic is more accurate, it's less pejorative, perhaps, you know, it names it more exactly how it is. Look, it is American society, but as an American political writer points out, if, if the 20th century was the American century, then the 21st century is the Americanized century. So globalized American corporate capitalism has really taken over the world as, as the dominant uh, economic model, but also as the dominant cultural model. And so that what we say of America is just representative of what's true all around the world. And we can see that in the arising of mental and physical health conditions in societies that didn't used to have them and not in the same numbers as globalization takes over the world. You know, for example, obesity, which has long been an American problem, now is a major health problem in China. And uh, ADHD, which has now become a health concern in China. I didn't even used to exist there, you know. And so it says a certain culture imposes its dominance internationally. All the ailments associated with it are, are cropping up. So yeah, we can talk about America, but America is only sort of the heightened and uh, most concentrated representation of what we call modern culture internationally. Yeah, this idea of, of capitalism and how a lot of people are benefiting off of the myth of normal is so interesting to me. Reading those aspects of your book really opened my eyes up in a lot of ways. I think I can be naive sometimes. I really think it's interesting how um, a lot of these um, afflictions that, that we suffer um, are well, you, you really humanize them, first of all. You really say that they really stem from a lot of thwarted basic needs, and I love that perspective. That's um, a perspective I take as well from uh, my mentor, Abraham, Abraham Maslow, which um, I saw you, you, you have a couple paragraphs about um, in your book. Well, I closed the book with Maslow, actually, and uh, yeah, pretty much the paragraph cites uh, yeah. him, and uh, he, he's the one that pointed out that the people that are what he calls self-actualized actually are detached from social values, like they're not reflexive opponents or rebels, but they also don't necessarily identify with the values of a society that's less healthy, that's less healthy than they are, so that... In, in the modern world, there's a real tension between genuinely being ourselves and conforming to society. And you can conform to society, then you're not being genuinely yourself for the most part, given the nature of the society. Yeah, I don't know how deeply you've gone into Maz's writings, but I, I went down a real rabbit hole when I was working on my book Transcend, and I came upon his writings on what he called metapathologies or metagrumbles. 
Uh, not many people are aware of these things, these, these, this term. Tell me what that means. Yeah, yeah, I, want, I wanted to see what you think of it. So he argued that we have um, our basic, when our basic needs are thwarted, we can grumble like, oh, I'm hungry, or oh, I'm, uh, don't, I'm lonely, or oh, I don't get respect. But meta-grumbles are, he said it's good to have meta-grumbles. Meta-grumbles are, oh, there's not enough meaning in the world, or there's not enough beauty. Oh, I'm frustrated, there's not enough justice. And he said that the meta-grumbles have a very different flavor to them, and that to not have those pathologies is actually a source of a pathology, <laughs> if you don't have the meta-pathologies. Isn't that, it's clever, isn't that clever? Well, it's also absolutely um, accurate, because as human beings and as a species, we do have certain needs. Mm. And so that the health or toxicity of a society can really be gauged by one measure. To what degree does this particular culture meet genuine human needs? And those needs in the capitalist world are tend to be defined purely as physical ones. Even in the, on the level of physical needs, this society is very uneven in delivering the goods. I mean, let's face it, some people get a lot more than their share and others are utterly deprived. This is even in the wealthiest countries. I don't think I need to go to too much trouble to prove that. But let alone spiritual and emotional needs for belonging and connection, and sense of meaning and purpose and transcendence, which are genuine human needs as Aslo Maslow knew more than anyone else. Society doesn't even consider them, let alone provide for them. In fact, it tramples all over them. And that induces a lot of them, what we call pathology in people. But their pathology is actually a normal response to what is an abnormal society. Very well said. On the Psychology Podcast, I like to make uh, connections. You've already noticed I've started doing this, make connections to your work and other work that I really admire. I also saw a great connection between your way of thinking about things and Isaac Prilotensky's way of thinking about things. I don't know if you've come across his work at all in the field of positive psychology. I think you would really like it. Um, and I, I know he, he uh, loves your work. Um, but he studies the need to matter. Yeah, yeah. And what he argues, we need to change from a me culture to a we culture, where we recognize that some people matter too much <laughs> in our society. Some people don't ever get the opportunities to matter. And he has this whole model well-being. This is where we need to be careful, I think. I mean, I first of all, I agree with it. And studies show that people that lack a sense of meaning, their presence makes a difference. That has an impact on their physiology. Uh, pathological impact on their physiology. So I absolutely agree with that on the one hand. On the other hand, the question becomes, what do we have to do to matter? So if I look at myself and my workaholism as a physician, it was very much about me wanting too much to matter in a sense that I didn't matter to myself. That's a result of childhood trauma. And then I try to compensate by trying to matter too much to others in a sense of being important to them. And that meant ignoring my own needs or the needs of my own children for the sake of being thought important. So it's a fine balance between mattering just as we are because we are and genuinely showing up as ourselves on the one hand, on the other hand, trying to buy that sense of importance through suppressing our own needs and impressing others. And this society is rife with demands that people should matter because they fit in with other people's expectations. And so we have to be careful on that one because that creates pathology as well.
that's a really good point. Can you can you explain a little more what you meant when you say our concept of well-being must move from the individual to the global? How can it move to the global while still keeping in individual being as mattering as well, like integrating that in, into the global? We can just begin with uh, early childhood. Uh, one of the essential needs of any human child is that the mere existence matters to the people that look after them. Not because they're smart or good or pretty or compliant or pleasant or useful, but just because they exist. So that sense of importance that only nurturing parenting environment can deliver to a young child is an essential developmental need of the child. So it, it begins on that level. And children, as many of us do, who get the impression that we matter only if we please, or if we matter only if we are attractive, or only if we're smart, or only if we're good at sports, or only if we're good little kids, that, I, that we have to buy somehow mm. that sense that we matter. That's a source of distress and physical and mental pathology later on in that same child, once they become adults, even before. So that's just an essential need that we should matter. Now, that's the one side of what comes up for me when I contemplate your question. The other side, of course, is that any spiritual tradition, and I know you've studied them, uh, will tell you that we're not isolated creatures, that we are, um, by our very existence, we stem from and we're part of a large unit that really is global. I mean, when you think about it on the strict level of physics, at some point, there was something when there was nothing. And then there's this mysterious big bang, and all of a sudden, the universe is born. And then some billions of years later, some particles of that universe are organized in such a way that they become what we call human beings with consciousness. But does that make us being part of that unity any less or any less dramatic or any less real? So that our mattering shows up on an individual level by our very entry into this form as human beings. And that's a need that needs to be recognized by the parenting environment. But at the same time, it's just a fundamental reality that we're also part of a global entity in unity. So there's no separation between the two. I mean, you properly understand it. Now, that's my own limited formulation of something that truly is a great mystery, but that's the clearest that I can put it. Yeah, this, this um, tension that you bring up in your book between attachment and authenticity, I, I, I can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> it's, just, it's so interesting. Um, we, we have these, both of these are big needs that we have, right? And they come online very early in our life at the same time, and especially in, you think about, think about adolescence. Oh my gosh, when people are trying to find an identity. Um, but at the same time, you know, there, there needs to be some sort of um, healthy attachment there um, to the caregiver in order to uh, explore that identity. I, I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit about that tension and how it can get resolved in a healthy way in one's life. Sure. Well, that needs not to be attention. So we have these two fundamental needs. One of them is for attachment. Now, that's just closeness, proximity with people who will take care of us. And that's just a biological and psychological, psychological need, not just of the young human, but of the young bear and the young elephant and the 
You know what happens when an elephant is born? The elephant mother goes into labor. All the other mothers stand around. Mm. And when the young elephant plops down to the ground, all the mothers stroke them with their trunks. Now talk about a sense of belonging. So that attachment and then the parenting of that little infant elephant happens in a group setting. So there's a sense of belonging and connection right from birth. Now that's also a need of the human child. And obviously without attachment, without somebody who's close to us, who's willing to extend themselves to take care of us, we just don't survive. So that's not a need that's in any way negotiable, especially with the human child who's the most helpless and the least mature and the most dependent of any animal for the longest period of time. Now that's one need. Now we have another need, which is what I call authenticity, which is not some vague new age concept. The auto literally means the self. So being in touch with oneself. And if you want to see the evolutionary significance of that need, imagine any animal, including a human, out in nature where we developed and evolved as a species who's not in touch with their gut feelings. How long do they survive? So that authenticity is, again, a survival need. Mm. There needs not to be a tension between them. In fact, we should be able to be authentic and still belong. That's healthy development. And as you alluded, when that attachment need is provided, an individuation, becoming a separate individual with self-respect, who at the same time can respect the community, is a given. Individuation happens automatically. In fact, you notice it in young kids, is the one and a half, what do they start saying? What's the word they start using at one and a half? I mean, it's not yes, it's no. That no. You know, put on your shoes, no, dinner time, no. They're all terrible twos. There's nothing terrible about it. That's nature's way of individuating the child. Nature says, okay, kid, you can't be this cuddly, cute little bundle all your life. You have to become somebody who knows your own mind, who knows what you want, them and you don't want. And before you can figure out what you want, you're going to have to know what you don't want. Before you can say yes, you have to say no, because without a no, your yeses don't mean anything at all. So that's individuation. And that happens naturally and spontaneously in the context of safe, secure attachment. There's not to be a tension between the two. However, in our culture, parents are very often taught that the way you socialize kids is you frustrate their needs. So, a child has a need to experience all their emotions, all of their emotions. Our brains are wired for joy, for pleasure, for fear, also for anger. Those all have essential roles to play in any animal's survival and existence. But what happens when parents today listen to any number of best-selling psychologists who tell the parents, child's angry, time out. Now, the child's biggest need is to connect with the parent emotionally and physically. The child also has a need to be able to experience all their emotions. But what happens when the message that the child gets is, if you have a certain emotion, you're on your own. Your attachment relationship no longer exists until you come back to what we think is normal. Then the child learns, oh, in order to attach, I have to sacrifice my authenticity. So it becomes a tension, not automatically, but because of a culture that doesn't understand genuine human needs. And so many of us, we learn that if we're authentic, then they're going to like us, and they're going to approve of us, and they're going to accept us. We have to talk the way they talk, look the way they look, like what they like. 
walk the way they walk, wear the same shoes, whatever, and think how they think. And if we don't, that threatens our attachments. So then we learn that our survival in this culture is associated with giving up our authenticity. And then 30 years later or 35 years later, you start asking yourself, well, whose life am I leading anyway? And who am I anyway? Because that lack of authenticity shows up in the form of mental health conditions and physical illness. And now we're saying, well, okay, what happened here? Well, what happened is in our environment, we associated surrendering our authenticity for the sake of belonging. That's the tragic tension. It doesn't need to be there, but in this culture it is. The trauma, loss, and uncertainty of our world have led many of us to ask life's biggest questions, such as who are we? What is our highest purpose? And how do we not only live through, but thrive in the wake of tragedy, division, and challenges to our fundamental way of living? To help us all address these questions, process what this unique time in human history has meant for us personally and collectively, and emerge whole, I've collaborated with my colleague and dear friend, Dr. Jordan Feingold, MD, to bring you our forthcoming book. It's called Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. It's a workbook designed to guide you on a journey of committing to growth and the pursuit of self-actualization every day. It's chock full of research from humanistic psychology, positive psychology, developmental psychology, personality psychology, cognitive science, and neuropsychology. So lots of themes that you hear about on this podcast. And it's aimed to help us all integrate the many facets of ourselves and co-create our new normal with a renewed sense of strength, vitality, and hope. Whether you're healing from loss, adapting to the new normal, or simply looking ahead to life's next chapter, Choose Growth will help steer you there to deeper connection to your values, your life vision, and ultimately your most authentic self. Choose Growth will officially hit the shelves September 13th, and you can order your copy or the audiobook in the U.S. now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and all major retailers. If you're in the U.K. and Commonwealth, you can order now at bookshop.org.uk. We truly hope this book helps you grow and thrive and become your best self. Okay, now back to the show. There's something so interesting about you, uh, something ironic. Let me see if I can articulate it. <laughs> yeah. um, you, it sounds like you're not a fan of like psychiatrists just dispensing medicine. You, you really, in a lot of ways, you're actually advocating what psychologists do, which is therapy. But you're a physician and not a psychologist. <laughs> so it's almost like you're saying, like, don't listen to the psychologist. Now, I know that's a great simplification, but it's just, it's kind of funny in a way. I appreciate you talking about how important the human psychology aspect is. Well, look, so here's what happened. In my medical training, nobody told me these things. Mm. But in medical practice, I began to notice that people got sick, chronic autoimmune conditions or malignancy, people who develop mental health conditions. Mm. These were just not isolated, random events. They represented something about that person's life. And in every case, I could trace it back to experiences they had in childhood and trauma and stresses they took on and this tension between authenticity and attachment. Like people, with, particularly with autoimmune disease, they tend to be people who really suppress their emotions for the sake of belonging. That's not just my funny thing. The funny thing is it's been studied over and over and over again and shown to be the case. It's just that nobody teaches you that in medical school. So once I began to realize all this through my own observation, and then I found this vast literature showing the unity of mind and body and the relationship of early experience and early entrained psychological patterns to physical and mental illness, 
then I realized it wasn't just enough for me to push pills on people, which deal with symptoms, I had to deal with the underlying dynamics. And that's when I began to counsel my patients. And that's one stream. The other stream was that I myself had issues. I was in my 40s, I was a successful physician, but I was depressed. I recognized that ADHD. I was in a marriage that I'm still in after 54 years almost, but it was a very troubled marriage and we're struggling. So I had to realize that something's going on here. And then I began to attend therapy myself. So the result is, in reality, there's no separation to be made between the, the psyche and the soma. From that point of view, every condition is psychosomatic, not in the sense of an imagined neurosis, but in the genuine scientific sense of the word, that the psyche and the soma can't be separated. And that's through whether we're talking about malignancy, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, depression, addiction, anxiety, whatever. So how could I not then discover the psychological literature? And then furthermore, what's also happened in medicine is that psychiatrists also over since the 50s and 60s have really narrowed their understanding. They used to have a broader understanding of things, but then the pills came along mm. and they could be dramatically helpful sometimes. And then we have what's called today biological psychiatry where it's all about just changing the biology of the brain and giving you a pill, but not looking at the issues that shape the biology of the brain. Because that's the other thing that's absolutely essential to know is that the human brain develops in interaction with the environment from the uterus onward. So the very biology that activates our brains is itself a product of social and psychological relationships. Mm. So there's no separation to be made. Well, I love it. I mean, I reading your book is just like, yes, a physician who's talking about why psychology is underlying so many of these, these issues. In 1938 at Harvard, there was a very famous physician. His name was Soma Weiss. He, like me, he was a Hun Hungarian Jewish immigrant to North America. He came from Transylvania. He was a, he's so revered that he, to this day at Harvard, they have a research day named after him every year. And in 1939, Somerweiss gave a lecture to medical school class, which was published in the Journal of the Medical Association. And he said that psychological and emotional factors are as important as physical ones in a causation of illness, and they must be at least as important in the healing of them. But this is a physician. He was a pharmacologist and the pathologist, he wasn't a psychiatrist. He said this, he printed this in the Journal of the American Association, just what you and I are talking about. And then four years ago, I'm talking to a guy who teaches at Harvard right now. And he said to me that until recently, to talk about the mind-body unity at Harvard is to jeopardize your career. Really? This is 70, 80 years after Stomer Weiss made that statement to medical. So it's, it's, it's what's frustrating here is that what we're talking about wasn't confined to the realm of, physio uh, of psychology. Doctors have understood this. Certain doctors have understood this all along. It's just that their insights get lost and they don't get incorporated into medical practice despite all the science that we now have to prove it. So it's doubly frustrating. That's a real shame. I have a, a book coming out on uh, overcoming trauma, and uh, it's called Choose Growth. But the reason why I, I bring this up is not, not just to pr promote my book, but I, I bring it up because my co-author um, of that book, her name is Jordan Feingold, and she just got her uh, MD. 
and she's trying to start this field called positive medicine. And I couldn't be more proud of her. She was actually my undergraduate student. I get tears in my eyes when I talk about her because I she was my she was my undergrad student when I was a professor at University of Pennsylvania. And now here she is. She's gotten uh, she's finished med school and she's starting this field of positive medicine. Would you know? It's just she's trying to do a lot of what you're you're talking about. She's trying to get the medical profession to pay attention and to uh, the flourishing of the patients um, as an important goal, in addition to their physical ailments, you know, um, and how these things are connected. So I just wanted to plug Jordan there for a second. You know, in 1977, I mentioned Soma Weiss in 1939. In 1977, there was an American psychiatrist and physician called George Engel mm. who said that we have to look at the whole person because human beings, and he called for a biopsychosocial model of medicine. It means that the biology of human beings is inseparable from their psychology and from their social relationships. So it sounds like your friend is trying to revivify that perspective, maybe with, with modern science. I'm trying to do the same thing. I wish her lots of fortitude because she's going to run up against a lot of brick walls. But so what? <laughs> yeah. Well, so far she's been implementing uh, some of these programs in the med school and the, and the doctors are loving it. Well, so there's been a lot of positive reception to it so far. The individual doctors love it. Yeah, yeah. individual doctors. Institutionally, yeah. there tends to be a lot of resistance. Mm. Anyway, maybe your friend will be successful at it and more power to her. Well, thank you for the, the word of encouragement. Because you say in your book, and, and we're very aligned with that perspective in, in, in our book, you say trauma is not what happens to you, but what happens inside you. This is a really, a really kind of, I think, a revolutionary rethinking of, of the idea of trauma. And, and it's so in line with the post-traumatic growth literature that we are focused on in our book. Um, I don't know if you've come into contact with that whole psychological literature and post-traumatic growth, but the way they define trauma within that field really is, it's very much the eye of the beholder. Yeah. You know? yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. I want to get some of your thoughts on how you think about trauma. Also, you know, I'm, I used to be an English teacher, so I pay a lot of attention. Really, you were yeah. an English teacher? I was an English teacher. Yeah. When? Well, uh, before I became a doctor, I, I I taught high school English, and I decided that was way too stressful, so I went to medical school instead. <laughs> <laughs> That's that is actually funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, but the, the whole story of why I taught before I became a doctor, but. That's the truth, but the result of which is that I pay a lot of attention to language. So trauma itself, or what is the origin of the word? It means wound. That's what it means. It's a, it's a Greek word for wound or wounding. So if I look at, now the wound is not what was done to you. It's what happens inside you as a result of what was done to you. So if I hit myself on the head with a hammer, what I'm suffering is not the hammer blow. What I'm suffering is the concussion. That's the result of the hammer blow. So that trauma is what happens inside you. Now that's the good news. Because the trauma is what happened to you. So my trauma, you might say, begins with me being a, an infant under Nazi occupation in Germany, born to a Jewish family. That's a traumatic circumstance to be born in. And as I explained in my first chapter, when I was a year old or 11 month old, my mother, to save my life, gave me to a total stranger in the street. And so I didn't see her. For she did that to save my life. Literally, I would not have survived where we were. So I didn't see her for five or six weeks. That was the traumatic incident. The trauma is that as a result, speaking of the eye of the beholder, what can a one-year-old infant make of that separation is that I'm being abandoned. I don't know that there's Hitler and war and genocide. All I know is my mother all of a sudden disappears. What I make that mean is 
I'm being abandoned. And who gets abandoned? Somebody who's unlovable. So the meaning I derive from that incident that saved my life, and incidentally and miraculously enough, when I was in Budapest a couple of months ago, I went swimming every morning at a sports facility that was across the street from the pavement when my mother had given me to the stranger all those years ago. <laughs> wow. But the meaning that I derived, the, 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 in the eye of this beholder, I was abandoned because I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm unlovable. Well, that means now, all my life I have to compensate. One way to compensate for being unlovable is go to medical school. Because if they don't love me, at least they're going to want me. Mm. You want to be wanted? Go to medical school. Mm. They're going to want you all the time when they're being born, when they're dying, and every moment in between. It's very addictive because I'm still trying to prove myself that I'm lovable. But I don't know that I'm doing that. And when you get this hit of being wanted momentarily, it doesn't satiate the internal emptiness of this belief that I developed and I'm not lovable. Therefore, I have to get more and more and more of it. And so... When you say it's an eye on the beholder, yeah, but the beholder was a one-year-old child, and it's the only co conclusion I could have drawn at the time, you know? And But then I have to overcome and understand and let go of this belief. Now, the good thing is, if the trauma was what happened to me, then I'll never be the person that wasn't, quote, abandoned by my mother all those years ago. But if the trauma is the wound that I sustain, which is that I'm not lovable, that I can overcome at any moment. So this view that we share, that trauma is what happens inside us rather than the event that happened to us, is a much more positive. It opens up the possibility of healing. Whereas if it's all in the past, the past is the past. Wow. Uh, so may I ask you a personal question? Absolutely. So you're, what, 78 right now? How old are you? Yeah. Yeah, 78. First of all, you look great. You look great for 78. <laughs> um, second of all, 78. And my second question is, do you feel worthy of love now? Yeah, wow. I do. So you did it. Wow. Well, you know, not that I don't have my moments, you know, mm. but overall, you can't compare my consciousness and how I relate to myself with even five years ago now, you know. Wow. But for me, it's been a long process. And uh, my view of myself is shifted a lot as a result of the work I've done on myself and in my relationship with my spouse and my work in the world. So the answer is yes, whereas uh, not that many years ago, I would have said, well, I don't know. I mean, intellectually, of course, I would have said yes, but I would not have felt it. I'm trying to like uh, comprehend your way of being. Uh, it's very interesting. There's like a real uh, sensitivity to you um, that I can identify uh, with myself as well. And uh, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying too sensitive. I'm just saying there is a, a lot of sensitivity. It's not too, but it is um, it is what it is. And do you find a lot of moments in your life for joy and spontaneity and, and laughter? Because you don't, you don't smile a lot. <laughs> well, if, if you saw me throughout the day in my relationship with my wife, for example, my kids, yeah. adult kids, or my friends, my family. There's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of joy, you know. When I tend to, but there's a kind of serious demeanor to me. And you're very serious. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, we're talking about serious subjects here, you know. I know. Um, I know. People that get to know me. I, I actually have uh, people who are listening. I have a great sense of humor. I laugh a lot. <laughs> Trust me. Believe me. 
you want, I'll get a certificate from my wife about how funny I can be. But See, um, that was funny. That was funny. <laughs> well, thank you. There's a serious bent to my mind. And I know that you've written about consciousness and the imbalance in the Western world of the, the, over, the, the, the overriding importance that we place on the intellect yeah. as opposed to the intuitive conscious. Yes, that, that's right. That's my dissertation work. Yes. Yeah. I, know, I know. Yeah. Well, I, Amazing. I, I did do a bit of research. I'm impressed. <laughs> and uh, when you actually look at how human beings develop, both as, as a genus or as animals, it's the emotional circus that develop first. In fact, animals, the emotions are far more dominant than any kind of cognitive process. It has to be. That's how they survive. In human beings on the individual level, we follow the same trajectory so that the right side of the brain that is associated with a holistic view and an emotional wisdom develops before the left side of the brain uh, in early infancy. Now, my early infancy was spent under conditions of extreme stress. I was two months old when the Germans occupied Hungary. Before then, Hungary was an anti-Semitic country. My father was raising reinforced labor. It was a tough situation. So the right side of my brain tends to be flooded with some pretty negative inputs. And that can show up in, I think that's what people sometimes see. You know, even though I'm kind of past it in many, many ways. But I, I was not programmed for joy. And, hmm. and, and when you mention joy, Joy is expressed in an infant, how? Through play. One of the essential circuits in the brain has to do with play. But as all the essential circuits, just because they're there, that doesn't mean they're activated. They have to be activated by the environment. So little babies start playing. You know? Mm. Nobody played with me when I was an infant. Mm. My mother was grieving the death of her parents in Auschwitz, lamenting the absence of her husband. She didn't know if he was dead or alive. She didn't know if her and I would survive from one week to the next. I didn't get a lot of joyful, playful input in the formation of my brain. So when people see that, that's the impact of my infancy. Yeah, I've come a long way, but yeah, it shows up in my demeanor sometimes. But the idea that you, like, when you enumerate the things that trauma does to separate us from our gut feelings, I resonated so much with them. I, I just found it so truthful. Um, I just want to uh, elucidate them for our audience, enumerate them for our audience. So trauma fosters a shame-based view of the world. Trauma distorts our view of the world. And trauma alienates us from the present. Yeah. Given that is the case, do you think that it it's it's um, helpful for someone who has this kind of uh, victimhood mentality, but someone who their identity is that they're a victim. Their identity is that you know they've had trauma and there's nothing they can do about it. Do you see a great way forward for those individuals to kind of transcend that mentality so they can heal? Absolutely. Not not only is it important, it's actually essential. Uh, it, it's, it's indispensable. There are two ways to go sideways with trauma. One, which is a lot of people do, is they deny it. They're not aware to how traumatized they are. I had a happy childhood. Not, what happened to me wasn't any worse what happened to anybody else. All these things are sort of dismissing one's own pain. But that's one. And this society reinforces that quite a bit. But the, the other is to identify with the victim part of oneself. And this, this is who I am. Which is to limit who you are. Like even when people say I'm a survivor, 
I said, no, you're not. Mm. That's something, that was an experience of yours, but that doesn't define you. Because we exist in the present moment. Wow, that's present, so really profound. And in the present moment, you're a human being who's quite capable of being fully here and fully in touch with themselves. The fact that you survive something doesn't define you. So I can understand that language, but whenever we identify with a certain experience, okay, you might have been victimized. If you were sexually abused as a child, it's hard to say that you were not victimized. You were. But if you identify as the victim, then you limit yourself to that particular experience. And you always were, even then, and you are now, much more than that. And so that identification itself, whenever, identification, the word itself is interesting. Idem to make, no, idem to same, for to make. Identification means we make ourselves the same as something. So as soon as we identify ourselves with one aspect of our life experience, we're limiting, we're making ourselves the same as that experience. That keeps us stuck in the past. So um, when I do therapy with people, when I teach therapy to my students, it's helping people let go of identify, identify, you know, recognizing the past, not denying it, but also not identifying with it. It sounds like you've you've come a long way in, in that regard as well over the course of your life. Well, believe and, me, uh, in my marriage, I love to be the victim. You know, <laughs> right? You write about that in the book of the airport. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, you know, because <laughs> then I get to be right, you know, and it's not my fault, you know, and I don't yeah. take responsibility. We all love yeah. to be victims, you know, not that we love yeah. to be victimized. For any conflict, we love to see ourselves as the hard done by party, you know. So, you know, there's that, my wife calls it the, I'm an ugly toad, kiss me syndrome, you know, where mm-hmm. you show up as a victim and poor me, and then she's supposed to kiss me, and then I become the beautiful prince, you know. And thank God she no longer puts up with that, you know. Mm. But but there's a ten- I, un- I understand that urge to see oneself as a victim. I'm telling people it doesn't help you. It's one thing to recognize what happened, but to identify with it and to continue to bring that up as a justification doesn't wash. For the Psychology Podcast, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So please go to podsurvey.com slash the dash psychology dash podcast and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us to get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash the dash psychology dash podcast thanks for your help you have this this idea that runs through it's a thread that runs through the whole book which is disease is a long-term process why is that a better way of looking at the situation than other ways that the doctors view disease as well as psychologists view disease right like in the dsm so let's take a a physical illness and let's take a mental health diagnosis, okay? Mm-hmm. So I've been diagnosed with ADHD, which is considered by my profession to be a heritable disease. I say it's neither heritable nor is it a disease. When you consider the, the conditions of my infancy, all the stress that surrounded me and infused my environment, how does an infant deal with all that? Can I run away or change the situation? No, you tune out. But when do you tune out? 
when your brain is developing. So the tuning that gets programmed into your brain, and then you're told you have this disease. No, you don't. You've got a coping mechanism mm. that's outlasted its usefulness. Mm. You know? So to say that I have ADHD makes an assumption. It assumes that there's this thing called ADHD, then there's this entity called me, and I have this thing. When you say somebody has rheumatoid arthritis, it assumes that there's such a thing as rheumatoid arthritis, then there's an entity called so-and-so, and so-and-so has this thing. Now, uh, here's the case that holds my glasses. Mm. I have this thing. I can put it down. I can pick it up. I can throw it in the air. It's not part of me. But there's no such thing as rheumatoid arthritis as a thing. It's a process inside a person. It's a process that manifests, according to a lot of research and certainly my observation, trauma and long-term stress. This is not a new idea. It goes back at least 100 years or more. It's just been proven over and over again since then. Now, if rheumatoid arthritis is not a thing that has a life of its own, hmm. but it's a process that manifests my life, then if I change my life, I can affect the process. So rather than this disease having its own trajectory, independent of who I am and what I do, now it's a process that I have agency in affecting. That's the first point, is that this idea of these conditions not being things, but processes, allows us individual agency. And that's contrary to the medical view that you got this condition, it's got a life of its own, here's what it's gonna do, and all we can do is mitigate its impact. So I know people who no longer on medications for their rheumatoid arthritis because they've taken on the process. Now, when we come back to ADHD now, there's also a kind of circular, almost absurdity in his diagnosis. So Gabor has ADHD. How do we know that Gabor has ADHD? Because he tunes out and he has poor impulse control. Why does he tune out having poor impulse control? Because he's got ADHD. How do we know he's got ADHD? Because he tunes out and has poor impulse control. Why does he tune out having poor impulse control? He's got ADHD. In other words, these diagnoses don't explain anything. Right. They describe things, and they might be useful as descriptions, but they're useless as explanations. The reason I tune out and I have a difficulty impulse control is because when I was growing up and my brain was being shaped, the situation called for me to tune out as a way of protection. And the impulse regulation circuits of my brain didn't have the right conditions for their development. It also means that with some consciousness and support, I can learn to be in the present moment and not tune out, and I can gain impulse regulation. So once you recognize that these diagnoses can be helpful descriptions, but they're useless as explanations. The explanation has to be found in that person's life and their relationship to themselves. Now you have this whole broad field of possibility that opens up in terms of treatment and healing. So I completely hear that and the importance of bringing in the experience, uh, the life experiences of a human in understanding these diseases. But just want to make sure I really understand your position. So, you know, the field of epigenetics, which I know that you're, uh, you like, you like some of the, you know, the, the findings coming from the field of epigenetics, you think it is explanatory. Um, it does include genes as, as part of it, part of the story. You wouldn't deny that, that genes are part of the story, though, right? Well, first of all, epigenetics doesn't so much bring in genes as the impact of the environment in genes. 
and activating genes. Yeah, right. yeah, that's precisely the point. So that yeah, genes are turned on and off by the environment. But not everyone has those same genes. No, there are some diseases that are really determined genetically. One of them runs in my own family. If you have this gene, you're going to have the disease. And my mother had it, my aunt had it. By the end of their lives, they're both nearly paralyzed because of it. You know, mm. purely genetic. Mm -hmm. Those are like one in 10,000. Mm. Most conditions are not genetically determined. Even if there's a genetic predisposition, that predisposition does not determine what will happen, but it depends on the environment. You talked about sensitivity earlier. Now, I'm pretty sure, from what I can read in the literature, that sensitivity is significantly genetically determined. But sensitivity just means that you feel everything more. That can make you joyful and creative and a leader and absolutely fulfilled if the conditions are right. It can also make you suffer tremendously when the conditions are not there. So the genes themselves don't determine any kind of condition. What they create is a predisposition to be more affected by what happens to you. And so the more sensitive you are, the more creative you're going to be, but you're also at higher risk if the conditions are not right because you'd be more hurt. So for most illnesses, genes don't play any kind of a determinant role. Not, and nobody's ever discovered any gene for any mental health disorder that if you have this gene, you're going to have this disease. Now, there's something, you know, rarely there's Huntington's Korea, you know, very rarely. But for the most mental health conditions, there's no single gene, there's no group of genes that if you have these genes, you will have this disease. What they have found is that there's a large group of genes that the more of them you have, the more risk you are for any number of mental health conditions, which means that the genes are not for any particular mental health condition. But they, what are they for? They're for sensitivity. There's just so much to discuss here, right? Like, and we, maybe we can we can continue some of this specific discussion in our IG live. But uh, yes, yeah, so you're referring to uh, polygenic scores, which you're absolutely right. Um, the genetic behavioral geneticists have discovered that the the holy grail is not going to be finding single genes. But there are when you look and multiply lots and lots and lots and lots of genes, you start getting some pretty decent risk predictions, depending that are very much based on triggers, environmental triggers. So that is true, nature nature via nurture, not uh, nature versus nurture. Yeah, yeah but look, first of all, I know geneticists who have got all kinds of arguments with polygenic scores. There's a debate in the genetic world. Number one, number two, let's say you're right in or the statement that you just articulated is correct. Mm. Which is the part that we can actually do something about? Right. Look, even if a condition was 99% genetic and 1% environmental, What's the part I can work with? The environmental part, you know? And there's no conditions that are 99% genetic. I mean, not in the mental health field. So let's just look at them. Let's grant that there's a whole bunch of genes that the more of them you have, the more likely to have this, that, or the other, depending on the environment. Let's look at what are the factors. Let's just stop looking at the molecules of the genes. Stop all those billions of dollars. They're useless. The Genome Project has led to absolutely nothing in terms of positive treatments, nothing after billions of dollars, as its own advocates have admitted. Let's look at what is it in the society? What are the environmental factors? Like if you take a condition like anxiety or say ADHD or depression, the number of people suffering them is going up and up and up and up, mm. documentably. Now, if that's the case, that shows that it can't be genetic. 
because genes don't change in a population in 10, 30, or even 100 years. It's got to be environmental. So for God's sakes, let's take our lift our eyes to the social environment that promotes function or dysfunction in human beings. That's the part, the parenting and the schooling and the, the laws and social organization and communities and relationships. That's the part we can actually powerfully affect. To play up devil's advocate for a second in the spirit of a discussion, there's this raging debate in the field that I work in in gifted education and in the genetics of academic achievement. Some people like Robert Pullman and his colleagues believe that there is great value in identifying certain genetic risk factors for like reading disorders as early as possible. He argues we should be screening for these genetic abnormalities um, as early as possible so that we can get them the right environments and inputs as early as possible to help them. And even more controversially, um, for gifted education, identifying those that are going to be able to learn quicker than others and give them the supports they need. So one could say to you, and by the way, I'm totally playing devil's advocate because I'm not a big fan of that what Pullman recommends. I'm not. I'm on the other side of this debate, but um, just in the sense of uh, uh, you know steel manning this, could one argue that um, well, there still is great value then in being able to identify the subset of individuals that will be more responsive to certain environments than others so that we don't waste our money on just everyone, but we uh, we can target it towards those that really actually would be affected in the environment with certain genes. Well, fair enough, but, uh, but you don't need genes for that. Any mother worth her salt will know what the kids' needs are. And, uh, and any teacher who is at all educated in human development and recognizing diversity will know what is the need of this particular kid? I agree in making education needs-based, but we don't need genetics to identify. And even if we had genetics, you can never show. You can show two people with the same genes have very different outcomes based on environmental input. So forget all this stuff about genes. With the environment, just let's just notice kids. Those kids that need the extra help, they'll manifest that. Their behavior will cry for it. And so we don't need all that stuff. We just have to be alert and sensitive and attuned to children's needs and know something about the interaction of the environment and the child's brain development. If we get that right, you know, we don't need the genetic proofs. In fact, the genetic proofs can create all kinds of alarms and unnecessary interventions that if the environment is right, aren't even needed. You know, so to me, it's a non-debate. Okay. Yeah. I'm inclined to believe with, with your perspective there. Yeah. Pathways to wholeness. I love, love, love that you define healing as moving in the direction of wholeness, not a designation, but a direction, just like what self-actualization is. When did that definition or way of thinking about healing come to you? I mean, have you been talking about that throughout your whole career in that way? Is that more, more recent development? I just adore it. I just adore that, you know, that, that whole way of thinking about healing. But I'm just wondering when that in your career did that come to you? It didn't come as a result of my education. I was trained as a medical doctor. Mm. which talks about cures, but not about healing so much. And there's a difference. Now, again, this is not a concept that's at all original to me. The word itself, healing, comes from the word for wholeness. That's the word origin. That's the etymology. In fact, I'm Hungarian, and it's interesting. In Hungarian, the word for health is egészség, and egész means whole. So literally, the word for health is being whole. Mm. Now, in English, the word is the same derivation of wholeness. I didn't make that up, nor was I the first one to uh, discover it. But as soon as I 
was acquainted with that concept, it made total sense to me. Because one of the things that trauma does is it splits us off from parts of ourselves. And it's that split that then creates all kinds of pathologies, whether of the mind or the body. And so that healing then involves becoming whole again, not so much to becoming whole, but to recognizing our wholeness and to integrating it. So that's why our the last eight chapters, the, the healing part of the book is called Pathways to Wholeness, because that's what health is. So no, I didn't learn it in medical school. I, I don't know at what point it, it, it started to resonate with me, but that's certainly firmly what I understand now. Yeah, and can you also explain why healing is not synonymous with self-improvement? Because everyone's obsessed with self-improvement right now, and like Instagram and TikTok. I don't know if you're on TikTok there. Dr. Monte. I know I have not had the pleasure, nor will I expect to have the pleasure of going on TikTok. There's only so much time in my life, you know? Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah, fair enough. But everyone's obsessed with this, optimizing, hacking themselves, you know? Is that, that, that's not the same as healing, is that right? Well, if you look on TikTok, where you have a lot of these influencers, influence to what? Influence to image. It's got nothing to do with the true self. It has to do with portraying an image that other people will like, which is just the opposite of authenticity. So TikTok is the least authentic invention in the history of the universe because it's all about, and, and why do you want, by the way, to be an influencer? So you can sell products that nobody needs. I mean, the benefit of being an influencer on TikTok is that some company will want to use your image, not who you are, because they don't know who you are, they don't care who you are. They want your image to sell some product that for God's sakes is not going to make anybody's life any better. So, but in a, in a broader sense, when people talk about self-improvement, what they mean is to make themselves better in their inauthenticity, more successful, inauthentic versions of themselves. They don't talk about self-awareness or self-knowledge. They talk about self-awareness, improvement, according to the standards of a toxic culture. So what is called self-improvement is very often the opposite of authenticity. So it looks good. I mean, look, on the most crass level, I could practice self-improvement by getting some Botox injections. Now, there'd be a few le fewer lines on my face. Is that self-improvement? No, it's tinkering with my image. I don't want to be crass about it, but a lot of self-improvement is really uh, superficial stuff. It's not about self-improvement. It's about self-awareness and self-manifestation. Yeah, you say, I'd like to quote you, you say, none of us need be perfect nor exercise saintly compassion, nor reach any emotional or spiritual benchmark before we can say we're on the healing path. All we need is readiness to participate in whatever process wants to unfold within us so that healing can happen naturally. So healing is a natural um, dynamic in inside any creature. If you cut a tree, I mean, if you just make a gash in a tree, there's a healing process. Mm. An animal, they don't order doctors, they just have an internal healing process. We all have a healing process. Now, traditional medicinal practices and shamanic medicines, wisdom medicines have always recognized that. Western medicine, which is brilliant in a lot of its interventions and indispensable, so I'm not, I'm, I haven't turned anti-doctor, <laughs> I'm still a doctor, you know, not that I don't practice anymore, but I still think like one. Western medicine has made incredible contributions, but it's forgotten about healing. And what if we combined the science and tradition, both the science and the, the modern science and the traditional wisdom of healing with the ingenious developments of Western medicine, boy, could we have a beautiful medical system. Yes, agreed.
Preach. Preach, brother. Yeah. The four threads that run through the book for the healing process are the four A's. So I just want to tell the listeners the four A's. So authenticity, and as I understand it, you really include awareness as a core part of authenticity. I do, and I wish I'd added awareness as a fifth A, by the way. Really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that, no, that was an oversight on my part. I, you know, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. So authenticity, awareness, agency. So let's double click on agency for a second, because I'm sure you agree there's there can be toxic agency, where you believe that you're, you can do anything if you just put your mind to it, and the environment doesn't matter at all. And well, that's not what you're talking about. Yeah, but these days don't exist in isolation from each other. So if there's authenticity and agency, you're not going to do that. Because you got the yeah, awareness. and So uh, double-click, explain what you mean by agency a little bit. So let's go back to my idea of disease as a process. Mm. Okay? So let's say you have multiple sclerosis, mm. which means that you get numbness uh, in your skin or you're paralyzed of a limb or you go blind in one eye temporarily or you get weakness of a leg or something. If you see the disease as a thing, then all you can do Let's go to the doctor, you get steroid infusion or whatever medication they want to give you to override the symptom. But if you see the process as a manifestation of your life and that if you recognize along with all the research that has been done that the flare-up of your multiple sclerosis has to do with stresses that you've unwittingly taken on in your life and you have the agency to say, okay, I'm going to learn from this. How was I stressing myself before the flare-up? And I'm going to not do that to myself anymore. Now you have agency. Now you're actually in charge of the process. And I've known people who have done this with wonderful results. And I'm not the only one to have researched this kind of an approach. So that agency means that you take charge. You take advice from others, but you're the one who's the active agent in your own healing rather than a passive recipient of health care from some expert. Is it related to self-efficacy? Well, it's a good other word for it, isn't it? Mm. But it doesn't start with an A, so I couldn't use it. In the- <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> and then yeah, the other one is anger. See, you have a good sense of humor. You have a good sense of humor. And the other one is anger. And wow, that's a fascinating one because a lot of people at first blush will be like, oh, you're including anger as a, a path to healness? Uh, sorry, a path to wholeness? Yeah. Do you like how I combined healing and wholeness and said healness? <laughs> Do you hear what I just did there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as a path to wholeness, but I totally see what you're saying about being able to regulate that anger. So, can you talk a little about why that is so important? Well, it's healthy anger, mm. healthy anger. Mm. So, want to play a bit of a game about anger? Mm, yeah. Are you up for that? Okay. Yeah, oh yeah. I okay. love games. So, so let's assume that all of a sudden, you know, the only rule in this game is that you can't leave this space. Okay, this is your life, so you can't leave it. Okay? Mm. But this space that you and I share, you know, online, mm. is your life. And I'm here on the screen, but all of a sudden I start getting intrusive. I start asking personal questions. I start demeaning you somehow. Mm. What would be your healthy response? The healthy response yeah. would be to have healthy assertiveness, I think, yes. to set a boundary. Exactly. And that would in a healthy be, way. And yeah. that's what healthy anger is all about. It's a boundary mm. defense. It says, no, this is my yeah. space. Get out. That's the essence of healthy anger. But once you've said that, and if I've desisted, 
there's no reason for you to stay angry. It's gone. It's done its job. It's not, you don't have to stop fuming about it and projecting it into the future or recalling all the evidence in the past. It's in the present moment. It's a boundary defense. So the role of the emotions in general is to allow in what is healthy and nurturing and to keep out what is toxic and unwelcome. That's the role of the emotions. Now, I'm going to ask you a skill testing question. What's the role? Of, what's the role of the immune system? Well, our immune system—it's almost a signal. It's like a, a barometer, barometer what's of what's its role, uh, notifying us, alerting us to well, to, well, the immune system to well to protect us, exactly. protect us by allowing in what is healthy and keeping out what is not. That's did I pass the test? Sorry, did I pass the test? <laughs> You came very close, you know. I mean, it's ten and a half out of ten. Okay, uh, not bad, not yeah. bad. <laughs> so the whole immune system is to keep up with toxic, like bacteria or toxins, allowing nutrients, mm. allowing healthy bacteria. Mm. You notice something? The emotional system and the immune system have the same role to keep up what is toxic and unhealthy, unwelcome, allowing what is nurturing and, and and welcome. Now, the physiological fact is that the immune system and the emotional system are it's not that they're connected it's that they're part and parcel of the same apparatus it's a one unit when we suppress our healthy anger we're actually suppressing our immune system and an immune system and, and you know as a psychologist what happens to anger that we suppress does it go f evaporate to the heavens mm -mm. sublimation <laughs> it, it turns against the individual in the form of self-loathing and depression and so on the same thing happens to the immune system so when we repress healthy anger because we're programmed to do so in childhood, we're at risk for autoimmune disease and malignancy and depression. I mean, even look at the word depression. What does it mean to depress something? It means to push it down. What are we pushing down when we depress something? We're pushing down our emotions. Why are we pushing it down? Within our mind, in our children's environment, our emotions were not accepted for what they were. So that the repression of healthy anger is a major contributor to pathology of all kinds. That's why I emphasize it. I'm talking about healthy anger. I'm not talking right. about toxic rage, which is a totally different proposition. I get it. I get it. And I love that you include that as the path to wholeness. Because a lot of people leave that out. Um, well, 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 I will say overall, a lot of people in the well-being industry leave out wholeness yeah. as an important. So I love that you do that. And I was actually going to uh, call my my most recent book, my prior book, Transcend, I was actually going to call it How to Be a Whole Person. It was actually the working title of it. It's just, I feel like that is left out a lot. So wonderful. And then the last one here for wholeness is acceptance. What's yeah. the difference between acceptance and, and, and uh, tolerating something? Huge difference. If I were to be permanently and chronically insulting to you in our whatever relationship that we had, or, or if you were to me, mm. and if I just put up with it by gritting my teeth where you did, that'd be tolerating something that's actually toxic. Mm because it's toxic to be in that kind of a relationship. So tolerating is putting up with something that is actually unacceptable. Now acceptance is just a recognition in the moment is that at this moment, this person is doing this. That's the truth. I can't deny that they're doing that. Now I have to decide what I want to do about it. So acceptance is just recognizing reality and saying, that's how it is right now. So acceptance is, is that acceptance is there's this COVID pandemic. As much as I rail about it, as much as I don't like it, I can't deny it. I accept that here it is. Now my question is, how do I respond? Not how do I tolerate it. 
but how do I respond to it? So acceptance leads to a healthy response. Here's how it is. I'm going to respond to it. Tolerance means putting up with the intolerable. The huge, vast world of difference. The one can masquerade as the other, but they're not all the same thing. So when we combine these four, and then we add in uh, some a dose of what you call compassionate inquiry, what do we get? Tell people a little about what compassionate inquiry is and uh, how it can help us undo self-limiting beliefs. So compassionate inquiry is both a method that, I don't want to say I developed it, but as a physician, for reasons I already explained, I, I found that I had to begin to look at the whole person and not just look at people's pathologies, but to look at their lives, their multi-generational histories, how they relate to themselves and all that. Now, because uh, as a family physician, my patients in a part where I worked in Vancouver, they couldn't afford private psychologists. And because the psychiatrists were so narrow in their perspective, this biological psychiatrist, let's give you a pill, where would I send my patients for counseling? I had to develop some counseling skill myself. So I just learned how to start asking questions. And as people saw me demonstrate this in, in groups and so on, they started asking me to teach them what I do. And I said, I can't teach it to you because I didn't learn it. And I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm just doing it. But they said, yeah, yeah, you can teach it. So that became this therapeutic approach called Compassionate Inquiry, which now has it's an online one-year-long course studied by physicians and psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors in about 80 countries. We've had about 3,000 students in the last three years. It's a one-year online course. But it's also an approach that I teach to individuals, which means that any aspect of you that you don't like, like let's say you have addiction. Now, you could just be hard on yourself. I'm an addict and I'm a failure and I'm a moral coward. You can do that. Or you can ask yourself, hmm, what role is that addiction playing in my life? Oh, hmm. it helps me soothe my pain. And the question is, how did you develop that pain? What happened to you? And how are you still holding on to that pain? So compassion inquiry just means asking questions. Now, so let me give you a you know, very obvious example. I could say to you or to me, why are you doing this? Now, is that a question? It's not a question. No, no. It's a judgment. But yeah. what if I said to you, hey, how come you're doing this? Which question are you more likely to answer? Yeah, totally. The second one, yeah. So when there's safety and compassion, so there's a spiritual teacher that I highly value and respect. He says, only when compassion is present will people allow themselves to see the truth. So the work that you and I do is all intended, if it is a core intention, is that people should come in contact with the truth of their lives, the truth of their world. But they only do that in a context of compassion. So that's why it's called compassion inquiry, asking the right questions, but in an atmosphere of compassion non-judgment, non-rejection. And if I notice you judging or rejecting any part of yourself, I will point that out to you. Like if you say to me, oh yeah, okay, so my dad yelled at me a lot, but a lot of kids have that happen to them. I would say, okay, would you ever say that to a five-year-old? Okay, your dad is yelling at you, but a lot of other dads are yelling too, so put up with it. No, you wouldn't. Well, then don't say it to yourself. So it, 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 it just means training people and being compassionate to themselves as they explore their own lives. I love it. And, and you know, someone who studies self-actualization, the science of self-actualization, the way you distilled self-actualization in just one phrase, you said authentic satisfaction. I was like, huh, 
Because, you know, I never really thought of it in that way before. But the way I had been thinking about self-actualization does does resonate with with that phrase, authentic satisfaction. And, you know, you, you get to a point in your life where, you, as you use the word awake, you're, you're waking up, right? Uh, you yeah. wake up to what's within you, right? You wake up to what the possibilities are for yourself and in, in the world. Is that is that how you're thinking about this? Absolutely, absolutely. And in the last chapter, I quote James Baldwin twice. Um, mm, I saw, I saw, yeah. And uh, in one phrase, he says that in this country, and I'd say in most countries, words are used not to wake up the sleeper, but to cover his sleep, you know? <laughs> yeah. And he also said, that not everything that's faced can be resolved, but not, but that nothing can be resolved that is not faced. So my words, and I think your words, and the words of many of our colleagues are actually designed to help people wake up and, 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 and to face what there is so that it can be resolved. That's really my work. That's really, I think, the work of all of us that are really committed to healing in this world. Yeah, that's what I got to say about that. Absolutely. I'm going to end here with a quote for another another quote from you. You say, we are blessed with a momentous opportunity. Shedding toxic myths of disconnection from ourselves, from one another, and from the planet, we can bring what is normal and what is natural, bit by bit, closer together. It is a task for the ages, one that can redeem the past, inspire the present, and point to a brighter, healthier future. It is our most daunting challenge and greatest possibility. Um, I really loved your book, and uh, I read all 570 pages. <laughs> it was a big book, but I, I really loved it, and I, I really appreciate you coming and speaking with me on the podcast. I, I hope you didn't find my questions about your personal life intrusive. <laughs> oh, listen, I'm very um, open about my personal life. Uh, I don't hide any aspect of it. I'm not ashamed of it. I've had my dysfunctions, my addictions. I've had the ways that I've imposed my trauma on my own family not deliberately, they're not personal, that's the impact of trauma. And so I don't use that as an excuse, but I also don't hide anything. So nobody can ask me anything that anyway bothers me because uh, my story is everybody's story. And, and uh, just as everybody else's story is my story as well. So what's there to hide? Absolutely, and I also hope uh, I was able to show some more of your humanity as well yeah. today well, in this episode. It's a really satisfying discussion. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You can rent a car, a house, even that little black party dress. So why not rent the stuff you need for your home too? The place to do it is Errands. Choose from thousands of new products from the brands you love, online or in store. Pick a payment plan that fits your budget and pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But if life changes, you can return it anytime or even upgrade it with something new. Rent what you need. It's better at Errands. 
Approval not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. See store for details. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 